Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would your evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Hello. Today we're going to do a video on the atonement. And more specifically, this video will be on why the penal substitution theory of the atonement is wrong. And the atonement, the topic of the atonement is very important and crucial and central to Christian theology. So it's very important we get this uh, doctrine right. We understand what the Bible says about this and what it doesn't say about this. Uh, so today we're going to talk about this penal substitution theory of the atonement. Uh, before I get into the scriptures, let me just give you my testimony about this uh, this theory of the atonement. Um, when I when I was at, at the point of deciding whether I was going to become a Calvinist or not, imagine that I was deciding whether I was going to become a Calvinist or not. Um, I believed in this theory of the atonement. Uh, I, I was among the the street evangelism community that uh, had been trained and I guess they brought up under Ray Comfort, and I always heard Ray Comfort say things like, "You broke the law." He paid your fine. Uh, nowadays, he'll even say something like, uh, it's, it was a legal transaction. And um, I've gotten to listening to people like Paul Washer and John Piper and R.C. Sproul. and started listening to things they would say. And they would say things like, you know, God poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf so that we can be saved from the wrath of God. And I, I believe this theory of the atonement, uh, not necessarily because I saw it in scriptures, but because I was taught it and believed what I was taught. I was guilty of not checking what these teachers were saying, but just simply believing them because I thought they were writing other things. They must be writing this as well. Uh, so, But once I started looking into this myself, about four years ago, end of 2006, beginning 2007, uh, this doctrine of the atonement, when I saw what the scriptures actually said about it, it rocked my world. Because at that point in time, as a maybe a three-pointer Calvinist, um, I was holding on to perseverance of saints and, and limited atonement based on foreknowledge and of course uh, a little bit of tea as well. Uh, it really uh, showed me that this is one of the reasons why I was holding on to P and I was holding on to L was because of my theory of the atonement. So I started looking into the scriptures and seeing what it had to say and I saw that this theory of atonement was not true at all, it was not biblical. And um, I would assert this, that Calvinists when they come to the scriptures that talk about Christ dying for all, or he's a propitiation not just for our sin, but for the whole world, uh, like in uh, you know, 1 Timothy. They're, they're coming to these scriptures, and the reason they're interpreting the way they are, in my opinion, they're twisting these verses uh, to fit their theology, to come into the scriptures and seeing what they actually say, uh, is because of their doctrine of the atonement. If they really believe that God poured out his wrath on his son, and that he received a literal punishment for our sins. Everybody, he couldn't have possibly died for everybody. Because if Christ took the wrath of God upon himself for the whole world, now we have universalism. Or, if you don't like universalism, we have a problem called double jeopardy. Which means Christ was punished for your sins, because he's punished for the sins of the whole world, but then again, you're still going to go to hell in the end, so that's double jeopardy. So, 
Uh, people who don't believe in limited atonement but believe in this theory of the atonement, the penal substitution theory of the atonement, they're being very inconsistent because either you have double jeopardy, which means God's punishing Jesus for your sins, and he's going to send you to hell and punish you for your sins, or you have Christ dying for all, everybody universally of all time, and having God's wrath poured out upon him for all, and therefore none can be lost. They're all saved, and we have universalism. So Calvinists don't like double jeopardy or universalism, and neither do I, uh, and they're trying to, trying to be consistent with the theory of the atonement, and therefore they come to this position of limited atonement. So they believe that God's wrath was only poured out on Jesus for the elect. Not for everybody, but only for the elect. So, but they twist so many, but in doing so, they twist so many clear verses. Instead of going back to the starting point and seeing if their theory is right or not on the atonement, they just accept their theory, like I did for a period of time, and they just come to the scriptures and twist the scriptures in light of their theory. Uh, but we'll get into that here in a minute. Uh, there's also this, I, this situation here that the penal substitution of theory of atonement is a very new theory. Uh, it was wasn't fully developed to the point where it is now. It's probably about the 16th century. Uh, Anselm created a uh, satisfactory substitutionary atonement around the uh, end of the uh, 11th century, right around the beginning of the 1100s, uh, end of the thousands. And uh, he developed a theory about a satisfaction on the atonement, but he, it wasn't developed to where it is now, where God is pouring out his wrath on his son on the cross uh, until the 16th century. So, but I'll have cows, even though they know this, I'll have cows tell me, I asked one guy, I said, because they like to call you a heretic if you don't believe in this theory of the atonement. And I asked one cow, I said, are you telling me that everybody before uh, this theory was developed to the point it is now was a heretic? And he had the audacity to say yes, that, that anyone who never believed in this theory of the atonement was a heretic. And that just blows my mind uh, that people would even say that. Um, so what happened to the faith once for all delivered to the saints in Jude 3? What happened to the gates of hell not prevailing against the church? So this, this theory of atonement was not around at all in any capacity until that time. Until Anselm's time and then finally developed fully until the 16th century during the Reformation. And then I have other Calvinists who tell me that this, uh, you know, I've even heard Paul Walsh say this, this is the gospel. This theory of atonement is the gospel. If you don't get this right, you don't have the gospel. And it's similar to, you know, Charles Spurgeon saying that Calvinism is the gospel. Um, so, if this is the gospel, then we didn't have the gospel, you know, for almost 1,600 years. And there's a big problem with that. Uh, it either, was, either it was really taught in the beginning by the apostles, and then it was lost for 1,500 years, or it was never taught by the apostles, and developed later on. And, uh, you know, a good, a good rule when it comes to theology, if it's new, the chances are it's false. Because what was given to the apostles in the beginning was what was needed. It was all that was needed. And it was sufficient. So that's what we have. We're dealing with this issue here of history and Calvinists making statements like this, like they have, and whether these statements are true or not. The question I want to ask you today is, does God have to pour out his wrath on someone in order to forgive sinners? Does God, is God sitting in heaven with this... He's got this, you know, steam coming out of his ears, this all red face, and he just, he has to beat up somebody. He has to pour his wrath on someone in order to forgive a sinner of their sins and cleanse them and allow them to have eternal life. Where do the scriptures say that? So that's one question to ask yourself as you're going through this, this video. 
Does God have to punish someone in order for us to be forgiven? Do the scriptures actually teach this theory of atonement, or do Calvinists come to the scriptures with this theory in hand and then twist the scriptures in light of it? So what I want to do now, I want to look at some of the proof texts people use to supposedly back up this theory of the atonement that says God must God pour out his wrath on his son on the cross, and it's by him pouring out his wrath on his son that we can be forgiven of our sins. So I want to look at some some verses in the Bible that people use to supposedly back up this theory. I want to see, I want you to see that these verses don't back it up. Let's first turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And um, I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to read a, a few verses that have to deal with this issue of God possibly pouring out his wrath on the Son. So the first verse we're going to look at is Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Okay, so we have verse 4 saying, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So smitten by God. Um, struck down by God. But notice what it says here in verse 4. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. So it's from the people's perspective that Isaiah is writing here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we would esteem him stricken, smitten by God. Now, does this mean that God literally smote Jesus Christ himself on the cross? That he literally smote Jesus himself with, the wrath, with his own wrath on the cross? Is that what it's saying here? There's no mention of God's wrath. There's a mention of being smitten by God, but it's yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. So from our perspective, that's what he looks like. And um, obviously we don't have any pictures or photos of what Jesus Christ would have looked like when he was on the cross, but, I mean, after everything that he probably went through, he probably would be unrecognizable. So we would esteem him as being smitten or stricken by God, as if he was cursed by God. And the Bible does say that he became a curse for us. Uh, so that's one verse, but it doesn't say that, that God's wrath is poured out on him on this verse. Okay, And then you have uh, in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, or crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. And the Calvinists, once again, or someone who believes in this theory, will once again say, look, he was crushed, he was bruised, that's God pouring out his wrath on his son. But it doesn't say that. Um, and I would, I, would, I would propose this to you. That when it says the Lord bruised him or crushed him, it isn't the Lord literally himself bruising or crushing the son. It's obvious, you go back to verse, uh, verse 5 here, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. So he was wounded, bruised, chastised, and had stripes put on his back. And the question becomes, who put these stripes on his back? Who literally bruised him and chastised him? Who, who literally crushed him and wounded him uh, for, our, for our sins? Was it God himself? Um, did God literally t uh, force sinful men? Was God the force behind sinful men to do this to his son? Or did sinful men do it themselves without any force of God behind him? And um, my assertion to you is going to be the third option. That sinners took by lawless hands, 
took the Son of God. He, of course, he laid his life down into their hands. He could have called them legions of angels if he wanted to. Uh, he, he didn't have to let them do these things, but he, he had the power to lay his life down. He laid his life down. He, he did what the Father willed him to do. And the whole reason why it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and when, like I said, I don't think the Lord is actually literally bruising him here. It's sinful men doing that. I'll, I'll get to that here in a little bit. But the reason he was pleased that, he would, that his son would be bruised was because he, he would make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, Jesus, the reason why God is pleased with what Jesus did, his life being a sin offering, was that he would justify many by his life. Okay, so I'll, to back up my theory here of just because it says the Lord, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that it wasn't really the Lord who actually literally did it, I'm going to go to another uh, situation in history, in biblical history, where it was said of this person, he killed someone else, but he didn't literally kill that person. And uh, I, I think it's a very similar situation here on what happened in that situation. Let's turn to Second Samuel chapter 11. And uh, what we see here, just to give a summary of the story here, is where David, of course, you, you probably already know this, David saw Bathsheba from afar, he's on top of his roof, he sent for her, uh, he was adulterous, he was, uh, committed adultery with her, she became pregnant, he tried to cover it up by sending for Uriah to come home, and get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, so he could be, he, thinking he was the one who impregnated her. But uh, Uriah was a very uh, noble man, he would not, he refused uh, to go down to be with his wife when his fellow soldiers were off at war. So he stayed at the palace. And uh, let's pick up here in Second Samuel chapter 11. And in verse 14, after, every, after David tried everything, he, he resorted to this. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote a letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So we see here, is David sends Uriah off because the only way he can cover it up now, what he did with Bathsheba, was to send his husband, her husband off to war, Uriah, have him killed, and then uh, you know he can kind of take blame, I guess you could say, for for Bathsheba's pregnancy. Uh, but let's let's see what it says here when Nathan confronts David in his sin. Nathan tells a parable of a, a lamb being taken from someone. And David gets angry about this parable because he wants the person who did this to be killed. And then down in verse in, uh, in verse 7, Nathan says to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wife into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. So, the question becomes here, David gave the command to Joab to do this, and then Joab gave the command to his soldiers to do what they did. But the question I have for you is this. In 2 Samuel 12, 9, Nathan accused David to his face under the power of the, you know, under the, under the anointing of the Spirit that he was the one who killed Uriah. 
Now, did David literally kill Uriah? Did he take a sword in his hand and kill Uriah? No, he was miles and miles away. Did Joab, who David gave this command to, did he literally kill Uriah? Of course not. He just gave the command to his soldiers. To the soldiers who drew back the protection from Uriah, did they literally kill Uriah? Of course not. The ones who literally killed Uriah were the Ammonites with their sword. And we don't, I don't think we even know the name of the person who, who actually killed Uriah, but he was an Ammonite who killed him. Uh, but yet, David is accused by Nathan of being responsible in killing, in the killing of, uh, of Uriah through the sword of the Ammonites. So David is getting re, uh, some kind of responsibility for that. Um, and in the same way, just like David told Joab, and Joab told the soldiers to draw back protection from Uriah so the Ammonites could kill him. In the same manner, God the Father, who protected his son all his life, and you see all, well, look at this in a second here, you see many times throughout Jesus' life where people wanted to kill him, they tried to kill him, but they couldn't kill him because his time had not yet come. And we'll look at that here in a second. But when it came down to the cross, the Father drew back his protection from his son and allowed lawless men to do what they wanted to to the Savior. So let's look at these uh, just a few passages here. In fact, I'm just going to give you references to them. I'm not going to actually read them. But I'm going to give you references to them and, and tell you just a short summary of what would happen there. We find in uh, Luke 5, 28 through 30, when Jesus goes back to visit in Nazareth, his hometown, as soon as he started preaching, that the people didn't react very kindly to him. They wanted to throw him off a cliff in Luke 5, 28 through 30. And Matthew 12, 14, he's healing someone on the Sabbath, so they want to put him to death. In uh, John 5.16, he just got done healing a lame man, and they wanted to put him to death. In John 7.19, John 7.25, John 7.30, John 7.44, people thought that he might be the Christ, so the other people wanted to put him to death. In John 8.37, and John 8.40, and John 8.59, he claimed equality with God, so they wanted to put him to death. In John 10.31-33, and John 10.39, Jesus was making himself God, so they wanted to put him to death. In John 11, 45-47, many of the people were believing in him, so the leaders wanted to put him to death. But then there came a point in time, in Jesus' ministry, when the Father lifted his divine hand of protection off the Son, and allowed lawless men to persecute him, to beat him, to bruise him, to crush him, to put stripes on his back, and to nail him to a cross, and do what they wanted to him. And the Father lifted his hand of protection off of him. So, uh, we have verses that I want to look at here that I think clarify Isaiah 53.10 and Isaiah 53.4-5 and New Testament clarifies the Old Testament in regards to this and I want, I want you to see that uh, God the Father wasn't the one who literally bruised him or crushed him or, or uh, put stripes on his back or any of those things uh, lawless men did those things. Let's, let's first look at Matthew chapter 17 and verse 22 through 23. This is Jesus speaking here. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. So Jesus, the Son of Man, is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. They will kill him. So they are the ones who are actually being blamed for killing him. And then in uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 18, and let's look at the start of verse 17. Uh, now Jesus, going to up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, 
and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. So the chief priests and the scribes, they condemned Jesus to death. And of course, Pontius Pilate had his hand as well, as we, as we see later on. But, and the ones who actually mocked him and scourged him and crucified him were the Gentiles. But the scribes and Pharisees and the, and the chief priests, they are the ones who delivered him to the Gentiles. Okay? And we'll see here in a minute that God the Father delivered Jesus into the hands of these men, who delivered him to the Gentiles and who did these things to him. Uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, on the, his Pentecost sermon, and as he's preaching, listen to what he says in verse uh, 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through, through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. So, Jesus was delivered to these people, and they are the ones who took by lawless hands, crucified, and put to death. Now, the part that God the Father had in it was delivering Jesus to them. Now, God had no shortage of people who would kill his son. Uh, we see in the, all these references I gave earlier, all these multiple verses where they wanted to kill him before this all happened, and he said they protected Jesus. And you go back and read those references for yourself and those verses for yourself, you'll see he walked through the mist, they didn't touch him, he disappeared all of a sudden, and they couldn't find him. You know, these, these are things that happened um, before it was his time. But the Father delivered him into the hands of lawless men and allowed them to do what they wanted by taking his protection off of them and by sending him to the world... And in Matthew, uh, John 7, 7, Jesus says, The world hates me, that testify that its works are evil. Now, Jesus came into the world testifying their evil works, or their evil deeds. They naturally hated him because they loved their sin. And they wanted to put him to death. And that's the natural response. I, I see it myself in the open air. I mean, if it wasn't for the law of the land constraining some people, they'd probably want to put open-air preachers to death, too, because they're, they're coming against their sin and the way they're living their lives. Uh, Acts 2.36, still in the, in the preaching on the day of Pentecost. Peter once again says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So they crucified him. They have taken by lawless hands. They delivered him to the Gentiles who beat him and scourged him and crucified him and mocked him. Uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, which says this. This is Peter preaching at a different time. Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. So the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. So who crucified him? Who put him to death? The Jews and the Gentiles. They are the ones who are involved in this whole thing. God's part was in uh, delivering his son into their hands, taking his divine protection off of them, uh, and... That In that sense, God the Father bruised him. Just in the same sense that David sent Uriah back off to war and gave the, the, the orders to Joab and the orders to the, and Joab gave orders to the soldier, he delivered him to death to the Ammonites, who were the ones who actually killed him. And then there's this issue of uh, this cup that Jesus drank in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's talking here in Matthew chapter 26. And 
people who believe in this theory of the atonement will say, well, the cup that, that Christ asked to, to pass from him, to take away, if it be the Father's will, is the cup of his Father's wrath. And I want to show you here, after reading this verse where it talks about this, go to another scripture here in a second, to prove to you it has nothing to do with the cup of God's wrath. It can't possibly be. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, and we'll start in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to the disciples, Sit here while I, I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to become sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink of it, your will be done. So what is this cup that Jesus is asking the Father to, to pass by? Is it a cup of God's wrath? Is it Christ uh, afraid of God's, God the Father pouring his wrath out on, his, on him when he gets on the cross? Well, let's, let's interpret Scripture with Scripture, the proper way to do hermeneutics. Matthew chapter 20, and verse, uh, starting in verse 20. Then a mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. He said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand, the other on your, on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, and be baptized with the baptism I, that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You are in you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. He, so Jesus asked, asked him again, verse 22, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? The cup that I am about to drink. And then he says in verse 23, You will indeed drink my cup. So, if the cup that Jesus drinks on the cross is, is the cup of God's wrath, I mean, it doesn't even reference the cross here, it just says he's about to drink a cup here, but the, the, the people who believe in this theory of the atonement automatically assume that he's drinking this cup on the cross and it's God's wrath. But if that's true, and God poured out his wrath on his son on the cross for the elect, that they would not experience his wrath, then you have two conclusions you can come to based upon these verses. One, James and John are not part of the elect. They're lost. Because they will indeed drink the cup that he's about to drink. The cup of God's wrath. If we assume that, that's what it is. Um, or we can say that this is not God's wrath. It's a cup of man's suffering. And James is one of the first apostles to die. John, they tried to kill him many times. They weren't able to. But the cup that Christ endured from the Garden of Gethsemane to the very end was a cup of suffering from men. Uh, we read through a bunch of verses here a minute ago that talk about that, but the cup he drank was the cup of suffering. It was not the cup of God's wrath. And 
if it is a cup of God's wrath, then James and John are lost, if you believe in this tier atonement. Or we have universalism once again, or we have double jeopardy once again. Okay? Uh, so that's the problem you have here. So the cup was not cup of God's wrath, but the cup of man's suffering upon Jesus. And then we have this idea that Jesus was separated from the Father. Because Jesus cried out on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people assume, well, God turned his back on the Son, literally. Uh, they were separated for a period of time. And uh, which I don't even know how that's possible. How is it possible that Christ is separated from the Father? If you understand the Trinity, you understand they cannot be separated relationally. They cannot be separated. They are one God. Uh, so if you understand the Trinity, I mean, I know it's three persons and one God, but if you understand the Trinity properly, there's no possible way they can be separated. But it all comes back to this idea that uh, the Christ literally became a sinner on the cross, etc. But we'll get to that here in a second. But Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now what did he mean by that? Well, he's quoting from Psalm chapter 22 and verse 1. And we just read the rest of that verse. And we can find exactly what he's talking about. And, and what he says here backs up what I've been saying this whole video. Psalm 22.1 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? So the Father, unlike the rest of the time that Jesus was on earth, was far from helping him. He was far from the words of his groaning. Christ went through a lot of suffering by the hands of lawless men. They beat him, they bruised him, they crucified him, they scourged him, they, they put stripes on his back. He was wounded. Uh, he was chastised. Um, all by his own creation. Because God the Father created the world through him. And his own creation, he's allowing this to happen. They're beating him, they're bruising him, they're crucifying him. Uh, must be a pretty heartbreaking for Jesus Christ on the cross. And this issue, uh, you know, another issue involving this theory of atonement is that Jesus literally became sinful on the cross. Uh, which would mean he was not the sinless, blameless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but now that he's a sinful, spotted Lamb uh, who can't take away the sins of the world. Okay, so, and if he really did become sinful on the cross, he would still be in hell right now. Because he'd have no right to leave hell. And we all know he didn't really go to hell, he went to Hades, but that's, that's another video from another time. But uh, he, didn't literally go, he didn't go to hell, and uh, he didn't literally take our punishment on the cross. He didn't literally uh, uh, bear our sins on the cross. That was figurative as well. Just like in the Old Testament sacrifices, we see uh, the scapegoat. Uh, we see the, the atonement, the Day of Atonement. They didn't literally become sinful goats or sinful rams. Or any other sacrifice literally become sinful. They were sin offerings. When the scapegoat was let out into the wilderness, he didn't literally become a sinful goat. He's an, it was an amoral being. It can't be moral or immoral. It was an amoral being. And Jesus Christ, who had never sinned, did not become sinful. And this all goes back to another part of his atonement theory is, is this imputation issue that um, our sins is transferred to Jesus Christ when he's on the cross, and his righteousness, personal righteousness, is transferred to us. And that's what happens on the cross. That's what imputation means, according to this theory. Uh, but I encourage you to check out my video on imputation and propitiation. I go into those Greek words and, and tell you what those words actually mean. I look at the scripture that talk about these things. And just check out that video. Just, I'm not going to discuss that in this video. But check that out for yourself and you see for yourself what that actually means. Um, propitiation, just to kind of give a, a little summary real quick, does not mean that God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. Okay, You can watch more about this in the video I, just, I told you about. 
but it means to, 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 that God takes the initiative to remove the impediment to a right relationship with Him. Propitiation means, once again, that God takes the initiative to remove the impediment to a right relationship with Him. The impediment is not His wrath. The impediment is our sin. And Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the beginning of the verse says, Almost all things are purified by blood. So, what Christ did on the cross able to purify us and cleanse of our sin, which removes the impediment to a right relationship with God, the Father. So, and God took the initiative to do this. But if the impediment is God's wrath, then 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through, I think, 22, would be false when it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It would have to say God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. See, the, the, the group that needs to move in this reconciliation process is not God. He's fine. When, who needs to move is us. We need to move to him. We need to be changed. He doesn't need to be changed. Uh, so, but check out the video on propitiation, the video on imputation. It's the same video, and they go into both those words. <laughs> Did Jesus take our literal punishment on the cross? Well, what is our punishment? Our punishment is that we go to hell forever for our sins. Let me see, and hopefully if you're watching this video, I don't have to prove that to you. But you can check out verses like Matthew 3.12, uh, Matthew 18.8. Matthew 25, 46, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 through 9, Jude 7, Jude 12 through 13, and Revelation 14, 11. I'll make it clear that our punishment we deserve for our sins is eternal hell. Everlasting fire in hell. That's what we deserve. So, that is our punishment because we've sinned in the past and we deserve those things. And Christ did not go to hell. Hopefully you'll agree with that. And he did not go to hell for eternity. Therefore, logic tells us he did not receive our literal exact punishment on the cross. Nor, from the verses we've seen, I've looked at these verses that talk about, supposedly support this idea that he received the wrath of God on the cross uh, for us. That is not true either. So, Jesus did not take our little punishment on the cross. Our little punishment is hell. And uh, even if you limit the atonement to... 100 people ever. Those 100 people still all deserved eternity in hell. So if Jesus only died to save 100 people ever, he had to go to hell for 100 eternities. Well, we know he didn't do that. He sat at the right hand of the Father interceding for the saints. So hopefully you can see here that this theory of atonement fails. It fails historically. It fails biblically. It fails logically. It does not pass the test. And the scriptures that they use to back it up uh, do not say what they say it says. They're reading into it. If this is the gospel, and if you don't believe in this, you're a heretic, you'd think there'd be at least one, just one explicit verse that says, God poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But there isn't one. It doesn't say that. And uh, hopefully next, next time I do a video, I can talk more about what actually happened on the cross, uh, what did God require, uh, what actually happens with people because of Christ dying on the cross? What did it accomplish? Why did God require it? Um, how does it affect us? And in the next video, Lord willing, I can talk about more of those things on the atonement. But this time, I just want to talk about this theory of atonement. And hopefully, you can see it does not match up biblically, logically, or historically. Um, so that's it for today. Uh, hopefully, you were edified by this video. Hopefully, you understand it. If you don't, ask some questions on the, on the comments underneath, and I'll do my best to answer them.
God bless.